0: Hello, everybody, welcome to the Crypto Hipsters podcast, where I interview founders and co-founders, entrepreneurs and artists, executives and stay at home hipsters in crypto and blockchain around the world. And I have an amazing podcast for you today let's get to it and today my guest um she is an amazing woman her name is susan joseph she is the ceo and founder of health trends ai and uh susan welcome to the show
1: thank you jamila it is a pleasure to be here crypto i'm glad i love it i love it
0: (laughs) thank you thank you um awesome my uh, my first question, kick things off, um, is what is your background? And um, is it a logical background for what you're doing now?
1: Sure, I am happy to answer that. So I am a JD MBA who has spent her life uh, dealing with nurturing relationships, proving events, using data in some form, hoping it's reliable one way or the other, and managing the results. I'm you know I started off actually doing affinity marketing with my MBA was started to invent those kinds of programs and then moved on to be a lawyer thought I was going to be a big courtroom lawyer as a lot of people do before they actually get out into the world and then gravitated to technology and its intersection with the law and so from a logical perspective i was furiously and still am passionately interested in the intersection of technology law data their relationship community relationships and all things about that i've worked in a lot of traditional settings law settings business settings and i found that um, a lot of technology firms and founders don't necessarily think all the way through the impact of governance, provenance of the data or transparency. And for that matter, probably a lot of enterprise doesn't necessarily think that through either. I think we're all getting an education as to volumes of data and uh, transparency and all sorts of things remote, courtesy of COVID. So I have in the past worked in senior roles for FinTech firms, insurance companies, I was a general counsel on ESG initiatives for the finance sector. and. I have worked primarily advising in blockchain since 2016. Once COVID hit, like so many people, everything changed. And that's led me to where I am today.
0: Great. And where you are today is the founder and CEO of Health Trends. Uh, Can you please tell us what uh, Health Trends is, what that's all about?
1: sure so health trends is about taking this ocean of public health care data that we are drowning in and making it consumable and meaningful to the consumer you you can get lost in the data it's pretty easy there's a lot out there uh we started off as most places start off i actually started off as a volunteer effort and Last year, I saw a lot of data arriving and leaving certain sites and it bothered me because I know from my background that official data really matters to a lot of enterprise, to first line workers in a situation like a pandemic, it's certainly your first weapon is understanding what data is there because you don't have anything else you need to understand what's there so i wanted to create and this is what i i also wanted to help you know you don't want me i'm not a frontline worker i'm not going to sit there and treat anybody i can't you wouldn't want me to sew a mask it would be a a bad thing um but what i could do because i had all this experience in data and analyzing and moving things forward is try and put together solutions so that frontline workers would have an easy way to access it. So I got a couple of friends together and we built a volunteer site that is still operating today that collected the beginning parts of the frontline data. If you can remember back to March, a lot of things were being reported in the news, but there were not state dashboards. There were not collections of data and there was no easy way to compare one state to another on a daily or even on a weekly basis so there was just no way to figure out how is my experience going to be like my neighboring states is it going to be like states that are across the country can i look at a growth curve what can i do so that was the purpose of creating that initiative um, really to get could make a messy data problem easy for somebody who needed to use it in our worst circumstances. So that, um, again, that was volunteer effort. Along the way, as we were doing this, I saw that the volunteer effort really isn't going to be enough to move us forward as a society. And so I came up with some other ideas of how to approach the problem and that's what healthtrends.ai is it's a for-profit company that is not the volunteer effort and has its own method of doing things
0: i remember some of those dashboards especially the ones on cnn that was a, it was the the death dashboard from COVID, and mm-hmm. you know we had a lot the numbers of deaths but not the underlying health reasons right um right some of that underlying reasons is that would is that, that happen to be some of the data that you're, you had collected?
1: That, yes, yes. Um, and, you know, further, so if you look at the way that a lot of the data is displayed, even today, it's interesting. Um, it's maps displayed in a lot of cases on the dashboards, which are brightly colored, very interesting, but also sometimes distracting ways to display data. If I am a vision impaired person, I can't necessarily read that data. So I have to wonder how that impacts sort of the open government ability to provide that data. And, you know. You can go overboard with maps. I think they're good. They serve a certain purpose, but you can go overboard with some of this. And that is really sort of messy data is data that just doesn't mean anything or it's hard to put together. And that's, we see a lot of that. So we'd like to make some sense of it. That's where HealthTrends.ai comes in.
0: Sounds good to me. Um, When when the pandemic first hit, uh, my cardiologist and my endocrinologist both called me and said, Make sure I take vitamin D, whatever I do, make sure I take that every day. So I said, okay, I did that and I'll end up being okay. Um, and, uh, so I'm glad that you're tackling this and I'm glad, you know, I want to find out more information about this particular question. Um, you received a $250,000 grant from the National Science Foundation. Um, congratulations. And I want to find out why and how you're going to put that to good use.
1: So it goes along with the idea that was, we saw, first of all, thrilled. I'm thrilled to, to say that we have that grant. Yes, and thank you. Um, it goes along with the idea. So the NSF supports research that can lead technology towards commercialization that wouldn't otherwise be funded because it might be higher risk Um, and you need to do a little bit of work. So that's what this money is for is to help us, um, get to market, uh, to grow a team, to build the next iteration of the product and begin commercialization. And I can tell you that we're already in talks with others to try and match, match those funds. Um, there's interest here, so. Yes, we're thrilled. It's a highly competitive program to receive funding and we're glad, very glad to have it and the support of the NSF program along the way. Because it isn't that they just write a check. This is through their America Seed Fund. They have training and a lot of support along the way for startups. So I'll give a plug to the NSF because if you think you have a science technology related R&D type idea that can move to commercialization and you can't get funding any other way um, and those are hard ty- hard problems to be funded for, then I definitely say go apply for this grant. They're competitive, but it's worth applying for. You never know.
0: So what I noticed with the PPP loans in the, during the times of COVID early on was there was money that was put out by the banks to precision medicine, right? How does Health Trends AI, um, either are you work with precision medicine or is it more, what, what, what's the direction that you're focused on?
1: No, we're more of a data, open data type company. Um, and PPP loans in particular were for existing businesses. So if you were a startup, that wasn't money that you could get um would have been nice but particularly with all the businesses going under to be able to form something but that's not who the the loans are allowed to be made to so um this is a more of a data health data initiative than it is precision medicine per se
0: great so in order to find out more information about you know the health data initiatives um and i had to go back to an old report from the world health organization and i don't even know if it's still applicable today i'm thinking it still is but they say that you know um that the areas of healthcare that need to be improved upon in the building blocks of healthcare um of health systems are and i have them listed here um service deli- service delivery workforce information systems access to essential medicine Financing and leadership. How where how and where do you fit into the the building blocks of the HWO's health system?
1: So we definitely fit into information systems, but I would say underlying all of these things is data. You know, when you compare things, I mean, even to take it out of healthcare for a second, most companies you know if you're using some kind of a financial index you're going to look at this public census data that's there to anchor it that public data is really uh, a resource that almost everybody relies on public health data is similar in that it has legal authority if you're using the stuff that the states provide i mean that is the legally relevant data and so That also has a lot of use. So you can say, let's look at public data. I know I'm I'm moving a little bit from the World Health Organization, but let's look at what you could do with public data. What did Zillow do with public data? They took a bunch of housing information and created services on top of it. Well, if you think of us as kind of the Zillow of public health care, you'll get an idea of where we're heading. Um but go back to sort of the World Health Organization, they can do things, service delivery and all sorts of things, but they really need to have the underlying information correct first. And that's, you know, we are looking at building something that creates that uh, assurance, that trust.
0: So right now you have a lot of privacy laws in in, in healthcare. So how would you as a how would you, would you take that private information and make it public? How would you how would you bridge that privacy and 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 with the doctors and stuff and, and bring it to to light? Right, and be able to use it.
1: So we're not looking to create protected information, availability for protected information, that still stays private. Our focus is on public health, and public health has the ability to set up different types of data in aggregate than probably private data does um, because of public health rules. And so we're looking at the public health records that are reported and making that really easy to use. You would think that would have been easy to use. I mean, sure, imagine what this pandemic would have been like if that information was available literally at the drop of a hat, right? I click, I get it. (laughs) You don't click and get it today. (laughs) It just doesn't doesn't exist that way. And so um, we would like to make it so, and not just for pandemic information. I mean, it's unfortunately a great use case, but, all public information should be that way, easy to access and click. Uh, it's not, you use this information, it's like this is our information, it is open information, open government information, and it should be very easy to use and access. But it isn't.
0: So I want to shift gears, but before I do, I have one further question in this area. Um, you know, I have saw pictures of Wuhan, uh china a few months ago and you had concerts there live concerts people were no masks people were dancing around right and here you still have a level of mistrust or or i could say in different basically looking at different states you have level trust or mistrust how do you think um and do you think um if we had this access to the data that you're building now available would we have been able to to you know be in a situation where people were dancing around in concerts and, and this has been and the coronavirus was something you know, put in the past long ago
1: so if you had open accessible data that was easy to use nobody would argue over it it wouldn't be misinformation it wouldn't be politicized and being an independent third party we're not government we have no skin in the game to support One particular party over another. We just want the data out there open and in a way that everybody can access and use it. And yes, we all want things to go back to normal. So I think it could have made a huge difference had it been there. And we hope that it gets there. You know, it's one thing to say this is, you know, okay, pandemic's winding down, maybe here, certainly not in other countries. And who knows if it wouldn't scale up again, depending on what the variants do. Um, and what global travel does, and how diseases travel. You know, you can look back at the flu and and see even in an era when travel wasn't so broad that you had a couple of year incidence of the flu before it kind of blew over into a something that you could treat, and people wouldn't die of it every year in the same way, not in droves. You know, so um, what we're building, though, is a tool that works. I want to emphasize is not just for a pandemic. It would be useful in a pandemic, but you've got other issues. You've got other health issues in the United States that you might want to look at. Maybe you want to look at vaping. Maybe you want to look at sexually transmitted diseases. There are lots of things that you can look at as long as you have the right tool to correct the data, you know, without uh providing any sort of politicized way of doing it
0: great so i want to look at some of those you know other uses of data um you wrote an article in december 2019 uh, entitled paradise is not lost the win-win of privacy rights and self-sovereign identity in a data-driven society Um, what are your key arguments there regarding privacy and identity and since you wrote that article, how has the landscape changed and where are we headed?
1: So I think that the key, um, key points there were if you could control your data and permission it and you could hold it so that nobody could or you would permission the use of it because sometimes a third party would have to hold it that you would have more control over where it's exposed and how it's used and I still believe that to be true I don't think that we have evolved to that point yet but look at contact tracing and look at the latest class action that showed up that I just saw today where one of the states contracted with a third-party provider and there was a breach on the contract tracing and all of that data was exposed. So now there's a class action against the third-party data provider and the state. Yeah, these sorts of things, there's always a trade-off, right? If you need to provide data somewhere, somebody's got to hold it. And how carefully they hold it, uh, I believe it should be in cases like this, you need almost a level of a fiduciary obligation because you're holding somebody's resource, right? Their description of their digital, of their selves. They are analog stuff translated into digital. And that really needs to be protected. And I don't necessarily know that your third-party provider is always going to be able to protect it. We've seen so many hacks to know that that kind of data can't be protected very effectively, or it certainly can easily be hacked. The minute you have a large honeypot of that data, it's an immediate target, because why do you want to get at that and sell it? And maybe do some ransomware. Um, so I think that it, there's a trade-off with this. Um, we have been using third-party providers, look at Equifax, look at uh, Facebook breach, etc. They all have had huge breaches. Until personally, uh, this has nothing to do with health trends, but personally, I think until there's huge litigation um, penalties for this. Behavior won't change. Behavior does tend to change when there is a financial incentive to change it. And I don't think that that has existed yet, nor is it, you know, the data breaches, we've seen some responses with California privacy law and other private states trying to put privacy law in. Um, Of course, a lot of (laughs) a lot of the legislation just kind of got swallowed up by COVID. But I think we really need to look at what we're doing as a digital passport, a digital health passport. You know, everybody has vaccine cards right now. There are, I live in New York, there is a digital app for for the vaccine that, how much information do you need to show? How hard is it to duplicate? And where's that information gonna go? Uh, How hard is it to hack? I saw articles that said that the New York State was very easy to hack because of the requirements that New York state put in. It wasn't necessarily the design, the designer's fault of the technology, but it's what the requirements were that the state provided. So uh, I think a lot more thought needs to be put into this. You know, if you go back to your World Health Organization pillars, I think I would add in there that identity and tracking and, uh, what's gonna happen to that information and it becomes really an important thing as well. We're not working on that, but that, that, that's my, um, my two cents on that, courtesy of that article.
0: So one follow up there is, you know, when I first got into blockchain, it was, I went to a conference, it was on social impact and it said, Ethereum is uh, identity for the unidentified. Um, so in this case, where you creating identity? Could you, is it possible? Get your thoughts. Um, capture the identity information on something in a blockchain like Ethereum, and then transfer on a, a middleware Oracle or something like that. Be able to transfer across chain. Would that have any impact right now? And would you be? Would that be something that you'd be working on to capture it on the blockchain?
1: we wouldn't be touching identity information but you know identity information on the blockchain is quite controversial you tend to want to hold that on your edge device because you can track what goes on on a blockchain so um let's just leave it there because that that could be like five hours of of a podcast
0: okay great um so then let's um let's talk a little bit more about diversity and inclusion then um you know mentioned that briefly um why does diversity and inclusion matter in blockchain and in healthcare and what about its role in building a healthy society
1: so i i I, diversity inclusion is something that you might know i um co-founded and um executive director of a not-for-profit totally pro bono effort uh called diversity in blockchain which looks which speaks exactly to this issue Um, why is it important when you are creating a brand new paradigm which i would argue blockchain technology is because it's technological it's relationship-based community-based etc that you need everybody weighing in on this Um, This isn't a pronouncement that comes on from high. This is open source software and everybody should, who wants to participate, should be participating and should be encouraged to participate. Uh, Very often in technology, we see a lot of either uncertainty from less represented groups that they can participate or um, sometimes outright barriers. And since we're at the beginning of this, I think that we can say, listen, let's just include everybody. Let's start here and make sure that everybody has a voice around the table about this technology since it's gonna affect everybody's life. Um, So I feel really pretty strongly about that. Um, You cannot develop technology in a vacuum. Whatever you're doing affects your business and your daily life you more or less think about our apps and everything else that we do and we're living in somebody else's way that they imagine things to be. I think everybody needs a voice on how things should be and that's what diversity and our not-for-profit is dedicated to doing. And I do feel pretty passionate about it, as you you can tell. Um, And I think the loss would be tremendous if we did not include all of those voices. You're looking at a technology that in a lot of ways is promised to be inclusive, right? You see a lot of claims about how um, technology can allow people who didn't have access to banking before have access to banking. That's a specific diversity and inclusion issue, maybe because they, and that's a separate thing, whether they have to go through customer checks and validations, et cetera, why they were excluded from the financial world in the first place. But assume putting all that aside, all you need is a computer, an internet address to participate, and that is new, and that brings uh, a level of inclusiveness opportunity that hasn't been there before. So, it's pretty important that everybody participates.
0: So I like that. I like that term participation. Um, I don't feel like right now everybody is. Right. It. Um. I think my generation is not. Um. At least half of my generation not. Half of my Gen X generation is not. What if the Gen X generation that is sitting on the sidelines still today were to get involved in this conversation? What do you think could be the breakthroughs?
1: Interesting question. I think that we would learn a lot from listening to them. This Gen X, right, is a generation that grew up with the Internet. The rest of us are the generation that is playing catch up with the Internet. That conversation of analog versus digital is a really interesting one. And I think we need, as a society, to do a lot of listening to that to see the direction that it goes. Um, I think that we would be very surprised to hear what this generation has to say. Coming up. And, you know, there's a big disconnect between the 20 something or 30, even a 30 year old who's starting out, who's very technology savvy, um, and the one who's managing a company who tends to be much more established in their career, much older. And yet, those two generations really need to speak because I think that, yes, you'll find more opportunity expected and inclusiveness expected from the younger generation. But what they miss is the experience. And those things have to be married. And they are kind of in siloed camps in a lot of instances. There's a lot of yes, but. And I think there could be a yes, and let's talk about it. Let's come to some solutions. Let's get everybody's view.
0: I agree. And I wrote a book on it called Regeneration X. Uh, so if you ever have a chance to read uh, that book you know please please do at your convenience it's 400 pages and it's long and it's really technical but um that'd be great um so thank you very much um for your time today i appreciate it i learned a lot um and i wish you best success and i, th- I think you will be um and, and um, it was an honor and a privilege and my last question um is um for those who want to find out more information about you about health trends about some of the things you've written your work, um, your career. What, how can they find out more information about you?
1: So, for health trends, you can go to the healthtrends.ai website. For me, I have a site that's called SusanGJoseph.com, which talks about my consulting experience. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter. So, um, I won't spell that out because I understand that you have a follow up on on that, but you can find me there. I'm pretty open, I'm on Telegram. There's a limit to how many places I want to be on, though, because monitoring all of that is in and of itself a full-time job. But I encourage people to reach out if they have any questions, comments, etc. Happy to answer that, happy to respond.
0: Great. Thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thank you.